I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, is there a scientific path to changing your life? It's March 1994, another muggy day in Key Biscayne, Florida, where Andre Agassi is waiting at a waterfront restaurant to meet a man who says he can save Andre's floundering tennis career. Andre, with his shoulder-length hair, dangly earrings, and jean shorts, is one of the sport's most recognizable players. He's also one of the most disappointing. No one denies his incredible natural talent. His forehand is fearsome. He glides around the court like he's on rollerblades. He should be one of the most dominant players in the game. Instead, he keeps coming up short, losing easy matches, making stupid mistakes, falling in the rankings, getting dumped by his coach. Although he's only 23, there are whispers that he's already past his prime. If he has any hope of turning things around, he needs a change and fast, which is why he's at this swanky Italian restaurant waiting to meet Brad Gilbert. Brad is a fellow pro who's looking to transition into coaching. Stylistically, he is Andre's opposite. His game is scrappy, devoid of finesse. He lacks Andre's grace, but he wins anyway, and Andre wants to know how. Once they're seated, Andre's manager turns to Brad and says, we want to get your take on Andre's game. Brad gulps his beer and looks across the table at Andre. You always try to be perfect, he says, and you always fall short. You try to hit a winner on every shot when just being steady would be enough. You don't have to be the best in the world every time you go out there. You just have to be better than one guy. Instead of succeeding, make him fail. Brad goes on like this for 15 minutes. Finally, he excuses himself and gets up to go find the bathroom. At which point, Andre turns to his manager and says, that's our guy. Several months later, Andre enters the US Open. He's unseated. No one expects him to get past the first few rounds but he's got a different game plan this time, the Brad Gilbert game plan. Like a high school bully, he finds his opponent's weaknesses, sloppy second serves, lazy backhand, slow feet, and he exploits them mercilessly. He reaches the final, facing off against a number four seed, a talented young German player named Michael Stieck. Andre wins the first set easily and takes the second in a tiebreak. But in the third, he can tell that Stieck isn't going down without a fight. The rallies get longer. Andre's confidence falters. Now, at this point, the old Andre would have turned to razzle-dazzle. He'd start taking unnecessary risks, try to outshine the guy on the other side of the net. But the new Andre, he hears Brad's voice in his head, go for the forehand. When in doubt, forehand, forehand, forehand. So he does. And Stieck makes one unforced error after another. Two points away from the championship. 47 unforced error for Michael Stieck. And what a costly one to make there. Championship point. Game, set, match. Andre Agassi. As one sports writer put it the next day, Agassi put his game back together with a combination of talent, 
discipline, aggression, and street smarts supplied by his newest coach, Brad Gilbert. The story of Andre Agassi's miraculous turnaround opens a new book by Wharton professor Katie Milkman called How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. We all want to change, yet so often when we try, we come up short. Why is that? Katie says the problem is we try to use one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we should be tailoring our tactics to defeat specific opponents. When in doubt, forehand, forehand, forehand. Every season here at the Next Big Idea Club, our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink, comb through all the latest nonfiction books and pick their two favorites. Over the summer, they picked How to Change, which is why we paired Katie up for a conversation with our curator, Daniel Pink. They discuss why a change in the weather can help you save money, how Katie's love for Harry Potter helped get her in better shape, and what the science of change tells us about becoming the people we want to be. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, everybody. This is Daniel Pink, one of the Next Big Idea Club curators. And I am here today with Katie Milkman, who is the author of one of our choices. It's a great book, and it's called How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where We Want to Be or Where You Want to Be, Where We All Want to Be. And Katie, as I read this book, I think what's standing in the way of change is us, that we are somehow as a species lazy and impulsive and and forgetful. Is that really the barrier to change? We all want to change for the better, but it's really, really hard. And so is that the barrier? Are we just flawed? (laughs) Well, it's one set of barriers. There are also external barriers that make change really hard, which is not what my book is about. So I don't want to say that those don't exist. They're really important, right? Structural inequality and so on. This is a book about how to change if the barriers are primarily internal. And it offers a lot of lessons from social science about what we can do once we understand what we're up against. But yes, we are flawed. (laughs) We are designed with all these features, bugs that make change a little bit harder. But once we recognize that, we're in much better shape. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about this book, not only is it extraordinarily practical, but even your way into it is really good, too, because I sort of, you know, my initial question had a little bit of a light touch, but we are kind of lazy and impulsive. But the solution as you see it or the frame of mind that you need to tackle that is not to berate yourself and not to lash yourself, not to excoriate yourself for being such a bad person. But you take actually, I think, in part from your training as an engineer, kind of an engineer's approach to this. Like this is a a system design problem and we can engineer our way out of it. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I have been most frustrated by over the last almost 20 years now of doing research in this area and working with individuals and organizations trying to make change is how infrequently the first question asked is, what's the barrier? Too often, we're sort of reaching for one-size-fits-all solutions that sound like they might work in this setting. Uh, You know, let's set big, audacious goals, visualize success, whatever it might be. 
And if you think about it more like an engineer, and I love the systems engineering shout out specifically, you'd actually do more diagnosis before you figure out what's the right solution. Once you identify the specific barrier, what's the specific challenge in this setting? So let me give you a really concrete example, right? We could think about medication adherence. Somebody comes to you and says, I'm really struggling to take my medications. They're life-saving. They're the only thing that's standing between me and a fatal heart attack, but I'm just not doing it on a daily basis and I really want to change. You know, you could give them a prescription and (laughs) not a medical prescription, a change prescription, but what you really need to know is why, right? If they're forgetting, they need reminders. If there's nasty side effects and they just can't bring themselves to take the meds because of those side effects or loom so large in their mind relative to those long-term benefits, even though they know it's worth it, then you need a really different approach, right? So once we get into that diagnosis, that's when all the magic happens. And when I think behavioral science and, and the tools we've developed over the last roughly 50 years studying behavior change can be most valuable. And I, I think it's true, maybe more generally in the world, that we're moving away from one-size-fits-all solutions in a whole range of things, from personalized medicine to even, you know, what my, the home screen on my iPhone looks different from the home screen on your iPhone to, you know, the 83 billion different varieties of coffee I can get at my local Starbucks. But in terms of change, it isn't one-size-fits-all. Your argument is that tailored attacks work better than that kind of, you know, one-size-for-everybody. Yeah, although I think there is a degree to which you could think about this superficially and just say, okay, you know, just like our iPhone home screens are different, you know, we should have different goals around change. And and mm. so there's tailoring and there's tailoring. So I think it's important that the tailoring be about understanding what is your specific obstacle? You know, are you not making progress because you lack confidence that you can really do it? Is it because you keep forgetting to take your medication? Is it because you are procrastinating or you have bad habits standing in the way? What is the specific barrier? And that's what we need to tailor around rather just than just personalizing. Right. So let's talk about one of those barriers, one of the barriers you write about. And it's a big barrier for a lot of people. I see it and I see it in myself, which is simply the barrier of getting started. I know I need to exercise. How do I get started? I know I need to be more conscientious in my work. How do I get started? What, what's, what are some ways to overcome that getting started problem? Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics that I got to write about. And I know, by the way, it overlaps with some of your interest on when the moments are right uh, for all sorts of things in life. And I love your book of that title. Some of my research has looked at a specific kind of moment that turns out to be really ideal for getting started with a change attempt. And the kinds of moments that we've found in my work can be so ideal are moments that feel like fresh starts or new beginnings, moments when we feel like we're turning a chapter in our lives. And by the way, one of the most interesting things about the psychology of autobiographical memory or the study of how we think about our own lives and and look back over our lives and construct those memories of them is that we think about ourselves like we were characters in a book And we organize time and our autobiographical memory into chapters. And those chapters aren't necessarily linear, right? We group time into buckets like 
oh, those were the college years. Those were my years in Boston. Those were the years when I was working for um, consulting firm X and so on. And that that isn't necessarily like always it's a two-year unit. It's really that there are these moments when we feel like we're opening a new chapter in our lives. Um, those feel like big new beginnings. And what my research with Heng Chen Dai of UCLA and Jason Reese um, of Behavioralize has shown is that at those new beginning moments, we feel like we can say, you know, I am I am different than I was before. We have more of a psychological disconnect. And whatever we failed to do that we meant to do, you know, I meant to quit smoking. I meant to be less emotional with my family and, and like less quick to anger. Uh, I meant to get in shape. Yeah, I didn't do that last time in the last chapter, but this is a fresh start and a clean slate and I'm a new person and I can do it. And that renewed optimism seems to drive um, more capability to change. And it's part of why people set New Year's resolutions at New Year's. But we found that there are other moments ranging from the start of a new week or a new month to the celebration of a birthday or a holiday that we associate with change. So you can think of dates like Easter or um, Rosh Hashanah, or even the Chinese New Year, depending on your culture, your religion, what's meaningful to you, they all are associated with big upticks in people's motivation and pursuit of, of change in all different parts of their lives. So if you're looking to begin, I think one of the best piece of advice I have to offer and that science has to offer is try to look for a moment that feels like a new beginning to you. Mm-hmm. It feels like a clean slate. And I should say that everything I've talked about so far is really a psychological shift, and that's really powerful. But if you literally have change, right, you've moved to a new location, some of your bad habits are going to be disrupted by that. Research shows that's even better. It's even more powerful. The closer you come to a true clean slate to work from, the better your chances are of being able to make a change. There's so many cool studies here. I I just want you to tell us about a couple of them. You talk about, in one case, a way to reframe certain dates to get people to save more money, like looking prospectively and thinking about dates in different ways. Forgive that ham-handed way of getting into it, but I think you know the study that I'm talking about. So tell us about that in a more coherent way. (laughs) I thought you got into it beautifully. So this is an experiment that uh, I ran with um, Shlomo Benartzi of um, UCLA, John Bashirs of Harvard, and Heng Chen Dai of UCLA. And what we were trying to do was use the insights we had about people's extra motivation to begin new challenges or, or make a change at fresh start moments to encourage retirement savings. Mm-hmm. So we partnered actually with a bunch of employers to message their employees who were currently not saving for retirement or were saving at, an, at a minuscule level and so needed to really up their contributions to have a chance at a comfortable retirement. And we sent out mailings to all those employees that invited them to begin saving either now if they're up for it or at some point in the future. And we know people like to procrastinate about doing things that they should do. So maybe that future date would be even more attractive. They could check a box choosing, um, you know, now or later, and then sign their name and send back this postcard that we had pre-addressed and pre-stamped for them. And we'd take care of the rest. To test the power of fresh starts, we actually experimentally varied how we offered that future opportunity to save in these postcards. So some people um, were invited to begin saving after a fresh start date, like a birthday or the first day of spring. And that's how we framed it. We said, you know, would you like to start saving after your upcoming birthday? Would you like to start saving at the start of spring? And people could say yes to that. And we randomly assigned people in another condition to get exactly the same offer without that 
description. So if your birthday is coming up, say, in three months, I would invite you to start saving in three months, but I wouldn't label it as your birthday, right? Or if the start of spring was in six months, I'd say, do you want to start saving in six months? But I wouldn't say, do you want to start saving at the beginning of spring? So these two groups, you've been randomly assigned to either have the label associated with a fresh start date or not. It's a really subtle difference, but we thought it might matter if calling out those fresh start moments is important to getting people's attention drawn to the the opportunity that they constitute. And what we found is that it did matter. So inviting people to begin saving on the exact same date, but labeling it the start of spring or labeling it after your next birthday increased uh, people's interest in saving and total savings over the next nine months went up um, 20 to 30%, depending on which statistical model in our paper you look at. So um, that was really exciting finding. And it built on some work we'd done in the laboratory showing similar things, that if you simply drew people's attention to a date by labeling the fresh start opportunity, you saw more interest in um, goal pursuit at those times. Yeah. And from an engineering perspective, if you think about the efficiency of that, the relative cost and complexity of doing that intervention and the benefit that it has, it's actually kind of extraordinary. I mean, to get retirement savings up 20% by just saying March 21st is the first day of spring. I mean, it doesn't require a lot of uh, coordination of teams or massive investments. So the other way to have a fresh start is not only in time, but in space and in place. And there's some interesting research involving Major League Baseball players that makes that very clear. Tell us about that. Yeah, I love that you asked about this research. It's work that my former student, Heng Chen Dai, did for her dissertation. uh, And I just think it's absolutely fascinating. She uh, looked at Major League Baseball players and she looked at what happens when they are traded to a new team. And actually, she specifically took advantage of a really interesting difference in what happens when you're traded across leagues in Major League Baseball versus traded within leagues. So it turns out both of those players actually do move to a new place. If you're traded across leagues or within leagues, a lot of the same things happen, right? You have to get used to a new community. You have to get used to new teammates and so on. But one thing that differs is that if you're traded across leagues, all of your season-to-date statistics are reset and you have to work on everything fresh. If you are traded within leagues, you get to hold on to your old batting average, et cetera. So in one case, you get this real clean slate and the other you don't. And she looked at what happened to players' performance after these trades. And actually, she had a really interesting hunch that it would depend on how they were doing so far in the season. She suspected, and this was based both on a theory she developed and also on laboratory experiments she had run, that if you'd been really on a roll, having a great season, a well above average performer, that this kind of disruption where you lose all of your past performance, your season-to-date statistics are reset, could be really disruptive. You don't want a fresh start when you're on a roll. But if you've been having a really crummy season, this might be exactly what you need. And so she's holding everything constant around being traded in that she's comparing people who had statistically identical seasons to date, um, but who were traded across leagues versus within leagues. And all she's looking at is this difference in policy. So those across league trades, you get the reset and the within league trades, you don't. And what she found is that reset of season to date statistics was really helpful to players who'd been having a rough season. They saw a boost relative to the players who didn't get that reset, but were also traded. 
And it was really harmful to people who were on a roll. And I think it's just fascinating. It highlights we want fresh starts and we want to give them to the people we're coaching, mentoring, um, parenting when things aren't going well. That's exactly when we want to use this as a tool to help propel change. But when things are going really well, we actually want to want to get out of the way. We don't want to create resets or fresh starts of any sort. We don't want disruptions because that can break the momentum. Now, in this area of change, uh, one of the things you write about is how our instincts in some ways are off about how to change. And when we decide, oh, I need to change, what path should I take? The one path that we often neglect is the enjoyable path. Tell us why that's a mistake. This is one of my favorite findings of the last decade from behavioral science, and it's based on work by Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell University, who discovered that most people, when they're trying to make a change in their lives, they look for the most efficient path to change, which makes total sense, right? you like, you have a goal, let me get there as fast and directly as possible. What's the most efficient route? Um, but a small subset of people look for the most fun way to pursue change. So you can think about somebody's trying to build a gym routine. One person heads for the maximally efficient Stairmaster, and the other, looking for fun, heads to Zumba class with their friends. Um, now, unquestionably, that person looking for efficiency might get a you know better outcome on that first try. But what Ayelet and Caitlin realized and discovered in study after study is that persistence is going to look really different. The people who are pursuing change in ways um, that are fun persist longer than people who pursue change that is focused on efficiency. So they've run a series of different experiments in different settings ranging from studying healthy eating to physical activity to study habits and found that if you encourage people to pursue change in ways that are, are more enjoyable, they persist longer than if they pursue change in ways that are just focused on effectiveness and efficiency. And I think we get that wrong all the time. Yeah. It's so important, so important to look for a way to make it fun if you want to stick to something. Yeah, it's. I don't know whether that's like a heavily American thing. We have this puritanical way of looking at change and self-improvement where if we're not suffering, we're not being virtuous. But as you write in the book, you know, Mary Poppins told us how to do this long, long ago. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down, medicine go down, just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, in a most delightful way. We'll be back in a moment. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Well, 
let's stick with some of the exercise thing here, because I find that's a, a big issue with people. And there are a couple of just really super interesting findings here. One of them is a, is, is a finding, one of your f- most famous papers that is rooted in your own experience, which is tell us how you made exercising for yourself fun and then how that led to a, I think, a pretty provocative and smart idea for getting through tough things that we might not want to do. Yeah, it's funny. I did this work as a graduate student long before I knew about ILET and Caitlin's brilliant insight, but it's sort of a microcosm of what they found. So as a grad student, I was really struggling to motivate myself to get to the gym at the end of a long day of classes. And I also really struggled to motivate myself to get my work done. All I wanted to do was binge watch TV or curl up on the couch with a juicy page turner, which Mm -hmm. I think most people can relate to. And I had this idea to solve both of those problems at once, um, which I now call temptation bundling. I started only letting myself indulge in entertainment if I was exercising at the gym. And I saw this sort of magical thing happen. I'd come home from classes and I would actually be eager to get to the gym to find out what happens next in my latest. I did it with audio novels, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I listened to like James Patterson and Harry Potter, all the Harry Potter novels I listened to as a graduate student. So fun. I couldn't wait to hear what happened next to Voldemort and Hermione and so on. And so I'm craving trips to the gym. Time is flying while I'm there. And then when I come home, I've gotten my entertainment fix out of the way and I was rejuvenated and ready to focus on my classwork. And my grades improved and so did my physical fitness. And it felt like this magic that I realized I could use in other parts of life too, that if I just hooked something that I did too much of to a chore to make that chore more fun, like you know, only listening to my favorite podcasts while I did household chores or popping a bottle of wine open if I was making a fresh meal. Uh, Those kinds of things could solve all these problems. So I studied it. Eventually, I ran experiments. Uh, I've run multiple now to show that when you give people temptations that are only accessible at the gym, like tempting audiobooks they can only listen to while they're Mm -hmm. exercising, you see about a 50% initial increase in exercise and a decent amount of persistence in those kinds of behaviors. So we can, I think, use temptation bundling more than we do. Ayala and Caitlin actually used it in one of their studies showing that giving kids markers and music and snacks while they were working on math problems That was a helpful way to make math something that they enjoyed more and persisted on longer. There's all sorts of ways that we can link pleasures with what we'd normally perceive to be a chore so that chore no longer feels so onerous. I, um, during one uh, dark winter where it was too cold and, and dreary to run outside and I had to run inside on a treadmill which I wasn't that keen on at the time, I, I used this very technique and said there's a show, I can't think of the name of it, in Spanish it's Casa de Papel. Uh, it was a uh, mystery show and about a bank robbery. It was this kind of purpley, really pulpy kind of thing. And Perfect. I had the exact same kind of experience where I was like, oh, I got to run today because I got to know, like, are they going to get the hostage out? Uh, it's a really <laughs> brilliant technique. Let's go back to the gym a little bit and let's go to another a study that you did at Google having to do with exercise that also yields a another uh, lesson beyond temptation bundling, I, I think more broadly for how we fashion better habits. This is one of my favorite studies I've ever run in part because 
I loved finding out I was wrong. And sometimes that's the most fun part of research. Um, so this is a project that was conceived of uh, in partnership with John Bashirs of Harvard Business School. And we had a big crew of wonderful collaborators, including folks at Google, who made it happen. And we had this idea in our minds that we could sort of engineer a habit. Uh, and we, gyms are great places to study habits because you can objectively measure, you know, are people really doing the thing? Yeah. Um, so we we cooked up this scheme to help about 2,500 Googlers who signed up for our study. That's what Google uh, employees are called affectionately in-house as Googlers. 2,500 of them who wanted to build an exercise habit, actually, not surprisingly, around New Year's. Um, we had a scheme to help them do it in a way that would really last not just for a month when we were going to offer them a program to help them kickstart it, but for long after that. So what we thought we would do is get people going to the gym in a really regular, consistent way, and that, that would help them build a habit. You know, if it's if 9 a.m. was the best time for them in general to work out, we'd try to get them to really consistently go at 9 a.m. And we thought that that would be superior to the way we normally try to build habits, which is just, you know, trying to do it at a high frequency, but not focusing so much attention on the consistency of the when. So we randomly assigned these 2,500 Googlers to two different experimental groups. Both of the groups of people tell us the ideal time for them to work out. When do you normally like to work out? So let's go with 9 a.m. Since I started there, assume everybody says that. Of course, there was variability, but let's say 9 a.m. Okay, so these two conditions, one of the groups, we say, we're going to only reward you for exercise if you come within two hours of that ideal time, if you come around 9 a.m. Or, or thereabouts. The other group, we say, great, you know, we'll remind you to come at 9 a.m., but come whenever you want and we'll reward you for your exercise. And this lasts for a month. It's like a month startup period. Then we stop rewarding them. We just let them go and we see who goes to the gym the most. Is it better to have been encouraged to go consistently or encouraged to go in a more variable way, I'll say. And just as you'd expect, the two groups that have these different rewards, we see equal frequency of gym attendance, but one group, 85% of their workouts were at this consistent time. And the other group, only half of their workouts were at a consistent time. They're much more variable in when they show up at the gym. Okay, and, and so far, all of that makes perfect sense, right? It's, it's about what we'd expect. Uh, the people who are supposed to show up at the gym at the same time actually are more likely to show up at the gym at the same time. The people with a little bit more flexibility actually exercise that flexibility. So something strange happens when we analyze the data and see which of these groups keeps coming to the gym at a higher rate after the program is over. Because the whole point of the program, right, was to build a habit that would last. And we were so sure that that consistency would breed habit based on past correlational data showing that people who take their medications, for instance, at the same time of day, tend to take their medications more consistently. People who show up at the gym at the same time of day tend to be more likely to show up at all. So all that correlational evidence made us think consistency is the key to habit. And it turned out when we analyzed our data, we found just the opposite pattern. We found that the people who had been rewarded for more inconsistent use of the gym, who'd been rewarded for mixing up when they went, actually were the ones who formed more lasting uh, behavior change, more lasting exercise habits. And when we dug into the data to try to figure out why, like how could we have gotten this so wrong, what was really interesting is, um, first of all, we weren't completely insane. It was true that if we had been rewarding you for 9 a.m. workouts all along, you were actually slightly more likely to show up at 9 a.m. for the rest of the year. That became sort of your regular workout time. But if you didn't make it at 9 a.m., 
you didn't come at all. And that was where the action happened. So people who had been more flexible about their workouts, if they missed their regular time, they still showed up. They came a little bit less at their regular time, but they got to the gym sort of no matter what. If they miss 9 a.m., they come at noon, or maybe they come at 5, but they found some way to get there. The people who had been rewarded for consistency, they were 9 a.m. or not at all. So we'd built these really rigid habits in those folks. And that was a big problem because it turns out flexibility is really important in the real world where life is constantly throwing you curveballs and you can't always do things the first best way. So um, we had built this this rigidity that ended up being harmful uh, when we told people, you know, always go at the same time, always go at the same time. And so that's really changed my thinking about the nature of um, building behavior change and, and building habitual repeated behavior change. I think we need to focus more on resilience and flexibility as we're sort of in startup mode trying to create a lasting Um, behavior change, whether it's, I want to meditate regularly, I want to exercise regularly, I want to uh, spend time with my friends regularly, whatever the goal that you're trying to put on autopilot, it seems to be really important not to have a brittle strategy, but instead to have a flexible one and figure out not only, you know, what's the first best way to get it done, but also have a backup plan and be ready to practice both you know, sometimes you do it at 9 a.m., sometimes you do it at noon so that you're ready to go to that backup plan when the first best strategy, something gets in the way. Elasticity beats rigidity. And in a way, it's all, to me, this is also part and parcel of this engineering approach to things. You want to have a system that is that is resilient, a system that isn't, as you suggest, brittle. So the first sign of stress, it cracks. Let me tell you my favorite takeaway from this book. And it's one that I I guess I need an implementation intention, also an idea in the book, in order to actually do this. But I aspire to do this, which is to form an advice club. And there's some really fascinating material in this book about, and I think it's counterintuitive, like this last thing we were talking about, where giving advice can be a way of changing ourselves. Tell us about that and tell us about your idea of an advice club. Yeah, this comes from... Lauren Eskris Winkler, who's a professor at the Kellogg School at Northwestern University and formerly a postdoc I got to work with at Wharton, she, I think, had the brilliant insight that too often when someone is struggling to change, whether it's it's us or someone we're trying to coach or mentor, the first strategy people use is to just offer them some unsolicited advice on how to do better. And um, she wondered, actually, if that might be exactly wrong. She realized mm. that might be really demotivating because it says you know, I think you're clueless and you must need the (laughs) wisdom I've generated in the last 30 seconds of thinking about this. And she thought, what if instead we flip the script? She's a really great social psychologist. And she realized if we actually ask people to coach or mentor other folks who are struggling to achieve the same goal, maybe more junior peers, it could be sort of a magical solution that helps the advice giver. And there's a few reasons for this. First, she thought that it puts you on a pedestal and makes you feel like somebody believes I've got the wisdom to advise my peers. I must not be so clueless after all. So you've got that confidence boost. But then also, you're going to have to actually go hunting for insights because you need to have something to say. And you may come up with ideas you wouldn't have thought of otherwise if you weren't responsible for coaching or mentoring someone else. And finally, once you've encouraged someone else to do something, you've given them advice, you're going to feel hypocritical if you don't take it yourself. So she's done a lot of wonderful research showing this idea is 
is true, that when you're put in the position of advice giver, it improves your own performance on whatever skill or goal you're trying to achieve that you're coaching other people on. We did one study together that involved high school students, and we just asked them to give advice on study habits to their younger peers. And lo and behold, the students who gave advice to their younger peers ended up actually improving their own grades in math and the, and the class they most wanted to improve in relative to a control group that didn't do this 10-minute advice-giving exercise. I do want to note that those are, we you know, we see small effects on grades, right? We're moving people from getting, uh, you know, like, we're moving them one point up on a, on a GPA, not like three to four, but if they're graded from 50 to 100, we're moving them on average from like getting a 75 to a 76. So statistically significant, but not huge effects. Um, but that's what you'd expect with a light touch intervention. And I do hope that it's true that um, we can, you know, develop even heavier handed versions of these and, and have more engagement and more activity. And maybe you'd see even bigger effects, but it's sort of a freebie and we should be certainly taking advantage of it. So giving advice to other people actually improves our own performance, but there's a way actually that you yourself have used to take that to an, another level with something called an advice club. Tell us about what that is and how it works for you. Yeah, I'm kind of crazy about this idea. And I have to say, it was an accident that I ended up in this club and realizing that we had sort of created something that was perfect as an application of this insight from Lauren Esker Swinkler's work. So I have a group of peers, um, three women at the same career stage with very similar goals at different universities, and our pact with each other is that whenever we have a tough decision to make that's career-related, we reach out to each other and we have sort of a special email handle that we put at the beginning, and we ask for advice. And it works and helps me in so many ways you wouldn't believe. I expected it to solely be about all the that sort of free consulting I get from these wonderful women and also the social bonding and cohesion. And I get those things in spades. But a surprising extra benefit I found is that it has built my own confidence in dealing with these kinds of career challenges because when they come to me with their problems, I realize, oh, I actually can solve these kinds of problems. I can think through that and give you a bunch of good advice. I'm better prepared when the same curveballs come my way uh, because, of course, some of the things that they face, I later face. And I have more confidence in my own competence to, to think through those problems. And once, of course, I've advised them on how to handle something, when I face a similar problem, I would feel silly not walking the talk myself. So I actually think we should probably all think about having more advice clubs in our life, particularly when there's some important goal that you really care about achieving. Uh, it has all of these benefits bundled into one, and um, it's truly a source of joy in my life. Yeah, I, I, amen. I think it's a I think it's a really powerful idea, and you know we, we've seen examples of this. I mean, to some extent, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, or Narcotics Anonymous, yeah, those kinds of support therapy groups are like that. You have a a sponsor, you have somebody helping you out to honor your university. I will give you a Philadelphia reference. <laughs> ben Franklin, when he you know did so many incredible things, but he had this thing called the Junto, which was a group of people who met periodically to talk about the big ideas and to um, almost certainly give each other advice. So there's something very human and powerful about people gathering to help each other out. 
Uh, I think it's at some level we have an innate propensity to do that kind of thing. And if we follow that and do it systematically, I think it can be really powerful. So I think it's I think it's a really, really great idea. I'd like to see those things flourishing all over America and the world. Me too. And I love that example from Ben Franklin, who is the number one person I I would pick if I got to play that game where you can bring someone back and have dinner with them. He is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and of course, you can't walk three blocks in Philadelphia without having a Franklin (laughs) reference or a Franklin or even worse, a Franklin in person. I'm not even sure you can walk one block. Yeah. Coming up, Katie tells Dan how an accidental breakthrough in mathematics may hold the secret to boosting your self-confidence. I want to come back to confidence here for a moment because that's one of the things that is a barrier to our being able to change. And there's a fantastic story in your book about the importance of not knowing to be unconfident. (laughs) Tell us about Jordan Danzig. I want to give credit where credit is due and say that I learned this story from Carol Dweck's wonderful book, Mindset. And from her, uh, she's just done such important work on how the way we think about the world changes the way we experience it. So the George Danzig story that I first learned from Carol Dweck is a story about a young mathematician who's taking classes at Berkeley, uh, runs into class one day a little late, sees a couple problems on the board, jots them down, thinking, of course, they must be homework assignments, finds them a little harder than usual, and is sort of embarrassed to turn them in a couple of days late to his professor, but does get them finished, hands them in. A couple of days later, his professor comes hunting for him and says, George, uh, those were unsolvable problems that I'd put on the board that mathematicians have been puzzling over for years, maybe decades, actually. And you solved them in a couple of days. This is unbelievable. And sort of the, the lesson of the story is that probably George Danzig wouldn't have come up with these solutions if he had thought of them as unsolvable problems. He wouldn't have even bothered to apply himself. And he certainly, when he found it difficult and, and started getting stumped, wouldn't have persisted until he got to the solutions. He would have said, well, they're unsolvable. But since he thought they were homework problems and expected to find a solution, he treated them differently. He pursued them differently and eventually solved these problems. I should say, George Danzig went on to have a very celebrated career as a mathematician. So there was a lot of raw talent and capability there too. But that confidence, that expectation that he would achieve proved pivotal in this story. And it relates to research applying, I think, the placebo effect to our own outcomes in life, suggesting that if we have different expectations in ourselves, if we're given a different set of beliefs, we do actually achieve different outcomes. And so, you know, we know this best as the placebo effect in medicine. If you take a sugar pill, but you believe it's supposed to make you better because your doctor told you it would, it has real measurable physiological benefits. And it turns out that's true, not just in medicine, but in other parts of life, that if you were 
you are expecting some outcome, in general, we see evidence that that you experience it to a greater degree. So that's a really powerful insight about confidence. If you're coaching other people or looking for who you want as a coach, people who are going to convey a belief in your capacity or conveying a belief in the capacity of the people you're coaching is going to be one of the roles you may want to look for because belief actually shapes outcomes. And I think that one of the, I think that this book is in some ways Danzigian in its confidence boosting effect because I think you read this book and look at the, the the research that you and so many other great scientists have done, and for me at least, and I think it's true for a lot of readers, it restores your confidence that yeah you can do something about it. You can't change everything in your life. You can't change all of your behaviors, but. You can change some. And if you go into those encounters with that, not the Danzig cluelessness, but the Danzig sense of possibility, then I think that we have a fighting chance to change. And uh, well, let, let me ask you two couple of final questions here, because let's we'll broaden this up, because you mentioned that at the, at the top, Katie, about how you're talking about internal changes here. And we have, you know, systemic societal changes as well. Tell us a little bit about some of the work you've done on an uncontroversial contemporary issue of vaccines. Uh, what have you learned? As soon as about, you said uncontroversial, I knew what you were going <laughs> to. About changing people's behavior around vaccines. Yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to mention this. Uh, maybe not surprisingly, about a year and a half ago when the world came to a screeching halt, um, like many scientists, I looked around and thought about what I could contribute, if anything. Mm -hmm. And the answer I ended up with was, uh, at least to me, it looked clear to my collaborators, it looked clear that the way out would probably be through vaccination. And we'd already studied uh, how to encourage people to get vaccines like flu shots and knew that it was a challenge and that we could do better in terms of our messaging if we wanted to nudge as many people as possible to follow through on, on vaccination. So we started experimenting with different communication strategies. Actually, in the fall of 2020, um, we developed dozens of different messages to test for encouraging flu vaccination, but all of them were designed with COVID-19 vaccines in mind. So we were testing things that we hoped would be portable and that subsequent scientists actually did take and test and prove could be used in that context. So of the dozens of messages we tested in partnership with Walmart pharmacies and two local health systems in my region, uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical System and Geisinger Health, we actually saw the same thing was sort of the winning strategy across all those settings. And it was basically telling people that a flu shot had been reserved for you or was waiting for you. And this sort of ownership language that we used has since been used successfully to nudge vaccination against COVID-19, actually in work led by my former PhD student, Heng Chen Dai, who we've talked about in the context of the fresh start effect here. So why is that working? We think that that messaging proved so useful for a few reasons. One is it conveyed um, that this belongs to you. Mm -hmm. And there's research on the endowment effect that's been done by Danny Kahneman and um, and Richard Thaler showing that when when you think something belongs to you, you value it more and you don't want to give it up. You no, know, you can't have my vaccine. That's mine. I don't want to give it to you. Right. So it may increase your valuation. Um, it may feel like it's going to be hassle free because, oh, you've set it aside for me. It's reserved. I don't have to worry about like, 
you know, whether you'll have it in stock. It conveys a bit of a recommendation, right, from the healthcare provider. If your pharmacist or your doctor says, I've reserved this vaccine for you, why would they do that if they don't think you should get it? And uh, all of those things combined with the fact that it sort of implies it's the default we're just expecting it. We don't. You don't even need to think about it. Of course, this is naturally what you'll do. Probably are what contribute to its effectiveness. And we saw uh, when it was sent to pharmacy patients and encouraging them to come get a, a vaccine, or people who had a doctor's appointment in three days and would be offered a vaccine at that appointment. In both cases, it increased vaccine take up about ten percent uh, relative to baseline, which is really exciting. So this has been used uh, since to encourage COVID nineteen vaccination. Well, you know, what I would like to do is is say to readers out there, just a copy of How to Change has been reserved for you, waiting for you at your bookstore. And if you don't go and get it, I'm just going to text you and call you and nag you till you have picked it up and read it. Katie Milkman, what a pleasure. Uh, Thanks for joining us here on the next Big Idea Club. Thank you so much for having me and for taking the time to ask me such great questions. And truly an honor to be, you know, part of the Next Big Idea Club. Such a great program. Want to hear Katie Milkman summarize the five biggest ideas from How to Change? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Katie's book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, a new one every day, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like this show and you want to take a small step toward changing your life in a positive way, leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Thank you, Katie Milkman and Daniel Pink. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.